Good evening. It is fantastic to be with you. It's Thursday night. We're here for Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is June 11th, 2020. And let's start at the beginning of the Parsha. If you have the stone Chumash, we're going to start on page 774. If you do not have the Chumash, don't worry about it. I will read the, the passages aloud. But if you do happen to have the stone Chumash handy, you could turn to page 774. Actually, what I'm going to ask you to do is to start the page before page 772, the end of last week's Parsha. So the end of last week's Parsha, you remember, the end of Parsha's Naso, was this long, long passage with the Nesim, the princes of each tribe that brought gifts. Each one brought a gift a different day of the de uh, dedication of the Mishkan, of the sanctuary. And then we add up all the gifts that they brought all together. Fine. That subject is over. Now we come to the next Parsha, our Parsha, page 774, the Parsha Baloscha, which begins with the mitzvah of lighting the menorah. Hashem tells Moshe to tell Aharon that it is the job of the Kohen, actually the job of the Kohen Gadol, in the Mishkan, and later in the base of Migdash, every morning and every evening to light the menorah. We've discussed this mitzvah earlier this week. But all the commentators ask about the placement of these two subjects one next to the other. Why is the mitzvah of the menorah, which was given only to Aaron, which related to the daily working in the Mishkan, why is that adjacent to, immediately following, the gifts of the Nesim of the princes? These gifts were only related to the uh, uh, dedication of the Mishkan. They had nothing to do with the inner workings of it, and it doesn't seem like uh, the two subjects deserve to be next to each other. So Rashi gives a famous answer, which I'm sure you've heard before. Rashi says that when Aharon, the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, when Aharon saw all of the gifts that the princes were, were giving, the, on one day, the prince of Yehuda brought a gift, and the next day, this prince and that prince and that prince, and everyone is bringing these beautiful gifts to serve Hashem in the, in, in the Mishkan. Aaron felt bad because Aaron, who was, after all, he wasn't the head of a tribe, but he was the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. Aaron felt bad that he did not have a gift to bring. You know, you go someplace and everybody's bringing a gift. And you didn't bring a gift. He felt bad. So God said to Aaron, don't feel bad. I promise by your life. What you will do in the Mishkan will be greater than what they have done in the Mishkan. Because you will have the role every day to light the menorah in the Mishkan and later the base of Migdash. And that's why our parsha begins. At the end of last week's parsha, Aaron was feeling bad. Hashem says, Aaron, cheer up. You have the mitzvah to light the menorah. 
Taber el Aram Varmarta Elav on page 774, the beginning of the parsha. Baloschas and Neiros and Mulpneam Norah. When it comes time for you to light the menorah, this is how you should do it. There are a lot of different answers to the following question. Okay, Aharon lit the menorah. The Nesim brought gifts that were used in the service of the Mishkan and the Beis HaMikdash. Why is one bigger than the other? Why, how, in what way is Aharon's responsibility better or greater than the responsibility of the Nesim, the princes? In what way was Aharon mollified by being able to offer the lighting of the menorah? So there are a number of different answers to this question. And tonight I'd like to share with you an answer given by Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky. And the answer goes like this. He says, Shehakarbanos hayu The Nesim, the princes, they brought offerings that were offered on the altar. Now the altar, the Mizbeach, was in the courtyard. And that means everyone could see it. It was visible. It was outside. In front of the building, the Hechal, the Ohel Moed, the tent of meeting itself. There was, and we studied this before, there was the structure itself, and then there was a courtyard around it. The altar was in the courtyard. Now people, not only Kohanim, but Levim, Yisraelim, people could stand around on the outside so they could see the offerings. They could watch the karbanos, the sacrifices being offered. So therefore, the gift of the princes was a gift whose utilization was public. However, hadlaka, but the lighting of the menorah, that was inside. And no Yisrael was allowed to go in. No Levi was allowed to go in. And not even a Kohen could go in unless it, he was one of the small group who was on duty that day. Except for the Kohen Gadol, the high priest who could go at any time. Your mitzvah, Hashem says to Aaron, Nasasa Bifnim, it's done inside, Bechashoi, quietly hidden. And therefore, your mitzvah is greater than theirs. Their mitzvah is public. Your mitzvah is private. And therefore, your mitzvah is, has greater quality than theirs. So don't feel bad that you didn't participate in the public mitzvah. You get to do the bigger mitzvah, which is the private mitzvah. Why is that true? That a mitzvah that is done quietly a mitzvah that is done in private is a higher quality mitzvah than a mitzvah that is done publicly in the presence of lots of people? Well, there are at least two reasons. One is the mitzvah done privately is more pure. It's done l'shem shamayim for the sake of heaven. It's done because it's a mitzvah, because there's no recognition, no one is seeing no one is noticing. To do that means that you really want to serve God because there's no one else who knows that you're even doing it. 
So it's more pure. It's more refined. It shows, it demonstrates a, a greater refinement of character. It's done with sneus, with modesty. And therefore, because only the one who does it and God knows, it's a greater mitzvah. There's a second reason. And the reason is as follows. When a person does a mitzvah, we understand that God will reward us. We receive a reward. This is a very complicated subject, but just to oversimplify for a moment, we understand that the main reward we will receive for the mitzvahs that we will do is not in this world, but it's in Olam Haba, the world to come. In the world to come, we will receive the, the reward. But it is possible that some of the reward we will receive comes in this world also. When we do a mitzvah in public, we get honor. We get recognition. People think highly of us. We burnish our reputation. That's part of the reward. And that means that the ultimate reward in Olam Haba, in the world to come, is diminished. Because you take out 10% now, you only have 90% left. And by the way, I could have the fractions quite off. And so therefore, a mitzvah that's done in private, I'm not getting any reward now. So all of the reward is reserved for me in Olam Haba. That's eternal, forever. But if I do something in public, some part of it I'm getting now. And therefore the reward is greater. So Aharon felt better because the mitzvah that he did was a mitzvah where he would receive the entirety of his reward in Olam Haba. None of it would be wasted on honor and recognition and those things that ultimately are so fleeting here in this world. I've told you many stories about the Chavetz Chaim, Rabbi Yisrael Mer Kagan of Radin. In the early 1900s, he was the Gadol Adar. He was the greatest Torah scholar and leader in the world. And yet he was a very humble and pure and poor man. And he lived his life in this town of Radin. I've said to you before, Radin is probably no larger than the grounds of Adaf, a tiny village in Poland. It once happened that the Chavetz Chaim had to travel from his home in Radin to Moscow. There was some need on behalf of the Jewish people. It was necessary for him to travel to the large town of, Rod, of, of Moscow. But, as he always did when he traveled, he insisted on traveling incognito. He did not want to be recognized because his name was so famous. He was so famous, wherever he would go, people would flock to want to see him, 
to want to speak to him, to show him honor. If he would have allowed it, at every train station where he arrived, there would be thousands of people waiting to honor him. And he didn't want that. He was simple. He didn't want the recognition. So he's traveling to Moscow and he made arrangements that he had a cousin. This man was his cousin in Moscow and he had arranged that he would stay with his cousin, but he made his cousin promise, you must keep this a secret. Don't tell anyone that I'm coming, especially don't tell them when I'm coming. I don't want anyone to know when I'm coming. So his cousin his host, he said to him, listen, I understand you're humble. I understand you don't want recognition, but the truth is you are a great man. And the truth is people want to be able to come see you and to pay you honor. They want just to be able to glimpse a tzaddik like you. What? What gives you the right to deny them this pleasure? They want to be able to do it. Why do you have the right to do that? So the Chavetz Chaim told his cousin the following answer. It's an answer that I can relate to just a little bit, as you'll see. He said to this man, I am certain that every Friday your wife makes potato kugel for Shabbos. And I am certain that it is a delicious potato kugel. And I am also certain that on Friday afternoon in your home, the aroma of that delicious potato kugel permeates the entire home. But if you would go to your wife on Friday afternoon and you would say to her, can I have a piece of potato kugel? It smells so good. Can I have a piece? She would say to you, and she would probably quote the words of the Talmud. The Gemara says, a person who works hard on Friday preparing for Shabbos will be able to eat delicious foods on Shabbos. But a person who cooks for Shabbos on Friday, but then while it's still Friday, they start eating the kugel, when Shabbos comes, they're not going to have as much. So if I allow people to come and I allow myself to receive this amount of reward, Erev Shabbos, meaning while I'm still in this physical world, when I get to Shabbos, when I get to Me'en Olam Haba, Olam Haba, the world to come, I will have already had part of my kugel and my reward will not be as great. The story does not recall this, but of course the cousin could have answered that maybe he could ask his wife to make two potato kugels, one for Friday and one for Shabbos. That's 
not part of the story and sadly not part of my life either. Okay. But it is good on Shabbos. I want to share with you something that is inspired by two essays of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. And what I'd like to share with you is something that is quite personal for me. It applies to every single one of us, but I'm sharing it from a, a personal point of view. <clears throat> no leadership position is easy. And leading Jews is a challenge and to, pro to try to provide spiritual leadership to Jews might be one of the hardest challenges of leadership that there is. A leader has to be calm, has to be up upbeat, and the truth is, and this is true for every single person, every one of us, we experience storms of emotion, ups and downs, especially when we confront how intractable problems are. I've shared this with you before. You know, I divide problems into two categories. Not big problems or little problems, because for the person who has it, every problem is a big problem. But there are problems with answers and there are problems without answers. Last night during dinner, I was interrupted by two phone calls. I don't mind at all being interrupted by phone calls during dinner. Of course, I, I don't take routine phone calls during dinner because I was with my family. But when I see it's something that is work-related, I do take it and I, I have no problem whatsoever to do that. I share this with you just to give you just a, a vignette, just of a few minutes of my night last night during dinner. Two phone calls. Let me make it clear. I'm going to be talking about Moshe Rabbeinu, the greatest Jewish leader that there ever was and ever will be. I'm not in the same category, not by any stretch of the imagination. But this is just my dinner last night. Two phone calls. The first phone call was from a man whose mother, Nebuch, is in Maimonides. She's on the COVID floor. She is Nebuch near the end. She and I have a certain relationship going back many years. She was crying for me to be there, to be with her at the end, to say Shema, to, to be with her at the end. And it was heartbreaking. I knew the answer. I ended the call and I called someone at Maimonides, but I knew the answer. And anyway, I just wanted to call just to call, to say that I've called. But of course, it's the right thing. They will not let another person, even a rabbi, even under these extreme circumstances to come onto the COVID floor because it's not safe. It's not safe. And I had to call this man back and to say that, I'm sorry, I, I, I can't come. It's not safe. I'm, I'm not allowed. 
and I can't do it. And I provided whatever pastoral help I could possibly provide, but, but ultimately I was not able to help in the way that this person needs to be helped. And then just a couple of minutes later, I got a phone call from a woman. And she tells me that her young son is being sexually abused by another adult. What should she do? I gave her whatever guidance I could give her. But I'm just saying, you know, that's, that's just five minutes of my night last night. So, when I feel like that, when I feel a little bit overwhelmed, especially by questions where I'm not able to help or that do not have an answer or I'm not able to provide that answer, I think about this Parsha. If you're in the Chumash, the Stone Chumash, page 786, we read at the bottom of the page, Perak Yudalaf, chapter eleven, Pasuk one, Vayihi Ha'am Kimis Onanim Rabbah's Nehashem. The people started to complain. The Jewish people started to complain against God, against Moshe. What were they complaining about? I told you before, it's certainly not false modesty for me to say. I'm nowhere near the category of Moshe Rabbeinu. However, I can say there's at least one way in which I, as a leader, I'm in the same category as Moshe Rabbeinu. Because he and I, our common denominator, both of us deal with complaints about food. The Jewish people complain repeatedly to Moshe about the food in Egypt, in, in the desert, and certainly the most complaints I get as the rabbi of Adath relate to the Kiddush food. So, okay, Baruch Hashem, me and Moshe Rabbeinu, we're on the same page, same category. And they're talking about how great it was in Egypt, and it's, you know, so strange. We've talked about this before. They seem to have forgotten that they were slaves and persecuted and tortured. Oh no, we had this food and that food. It was so great. And Hashem gets very upset with them. And then towards uh, page 788, towards the bottom of the page, Vayishma Moshe es ha'am Moshe heard the people crying because they didn't have the food that they wanted. They had enough food. They just didn't have the food that they wanted. So what happened is they were running short on the hot dogs and blankets and people started crying exactly like a death. Same thing. They're crying, not the children. Children, I understand. This is the adults crying. Hashem was very upset. What? You're forgetting about the miracles. I took you out of Egypt. I split the Red Sea. I'm giving you this miraculous food and you're complaining? So, 
Moshe, so Hashem being upset, I understand. But something different happens to Moshe. Ube'ene Moshe Ra. But Moshe, Moshe was more than just angry. Something else happened to Moshe at this point. He breaks down. Moshe breaks down in a way that we have not seen happen to him since we met him in the beginning of the book of Shmos. I'm on page 788, Pasuk 11 near the bottom of the page. Moshe says to God, Why, why, Why have you brought such evil upon me? Why have I not found favor in your eyes? Why are you putting all this burden on me? Did I give birth to these people that I'm their mother, I'm their nurse, I should carry them on my back? And they complain about this food. It's too much for me. This burden, the complaining, it's too much for me. Lo uchal anochi levadi I can't take it anymore. Ki mi many. It's too heavy for me. V'im kocha at oseli. Moshe says to Hashem, if this is what you're going to do to me, if this is what I have to face, hargeni naharog. Just take my life. I, I don't want to live anymore. I can't stand it. I can't take it. Just kill me now. It's stunning. Moshe Rabbeinu? And after all, I mean, you know, I wish I could be there to say, Moshe, but they're complaining about the Kiddush in every single shul in the world. Don't get so upset. And I have some news for you. Even if you're low on the hot dogs this week, Mr. Klein has plenty in the freezer. Next Shabbos, there'll be plenty. I promise you. I know. First-hand experience. But Moshe can't handle it. He loses it. And I think to myself, when I am in dark periods, I think to myself, well, at the very least, I have not reached that point yet. I have been frustrated. Maybe I've lost my temper. Maybe I've not always responded the right way. But I never, so far, I haven't reached this point. But this passage is so important. It's so empowering because what Moshe is, what, what I'm sorry, what I get to learn from, and like little bitty me and every other, I mean, great leader for all time, but even little bitty me, what I get to learn is that feeling that I have failed does not mean that I have failed because Moshe here clearly feels that he failed and he is clearly ready ready to give up. I don't mean to give up to retire. I mean, give up like, that's it. It's over. Life is over. 
He felt that sincerely. We know, of course, we know, of course, is the rest of the Parsha and there's the rest of the Torah. Moshe is the greatest hero, the greatest leader in all of Jewish history. So that means it's an amazing thing. A person can feel that they failed and yet still they have not failed. And what's amazing about the Torah, let's just take a wider view for a moment. What is really incredible is that the Torah tells us this type of narrative about several of our greatest leaders. Moshe was not the only Navi, not the only prophet who prayed to God that he should die. Eliyahu Navi, Elijah, prayed to God that he should die. Yirmiyo, Jeremiah, prayed to God that he should die. Yonah, prayed to God that he should die. In Tehillim, David HaMelech, repeatedly talks about his despair. Keli, Keli, Lama Zabtani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is the Torah telling us these stories, these dark narratives about our greatest leaders? Because it's profoundly liberating. Because it's teaching us something that is very, very important. And that is, you want to be a Jewish leader? Judaism is not a guarantee that you're going to be spared heartache and pain. Why? For a very simple reason. Because Judaism is a faith that seeks to change the world. Judaism, this is a quote from Rabbi Sachs, Judaism is a protest against the world that is in the name of the world that ought to be. But people don't like change. And that's why Moshe and David and Elio and Yermio and Yonah and so many others found life so hard. And that's why so many leaders continue to find life so hard because we're about change and change is hard. But it's so empowering and liberating to see this happening to Moshe and to learn. And if Moshe was able to get through it, I certainly can get through it. And then, of course, there's a second half. And the second half is the way in which God responds. Because what is absolutely fascinating, when Moshe gives this speech of, I mean, I, I hate even to say the words, I don't want to say the words, but giving up on life. What's fascinating is God's response. God does not say to him, listen, you got to be the leader, be the big guy, pull yourself together. God says something that is very practical and something that is a tremendous lesson for every single one of us. God says, I'm reading in the next Pasuk, on page 790 in the Stone Chumash, in the middle, Pasuk 16, God says to Moshe, Gather together 70 elders and I will take 
some of the burden that is on you and I will share it with them. You don't have to do it by yourself. I'm going to give you some help so that it's shared. The responsibility is shared. Remember back a number of weeks ago in Parshas Yisro when Moshe's father-in-law came to visit and Moshe's father-in-law sees Moshe adjudicating court cases all day long and Yisro says to Moshe, you can't do it by yourself. You're going to burn out. Appoint judges who will listen to the cases and the difficult cases will come to you. This is the same thing. That's in a judicial sense. This is now in a leadership sense. Hashem says, you don't have to do it by yourself. I'm going to give you people that will work with you. You're going to have colleagues. You're going to have friends. You're not going to be alone. And here's what's interesting. Once these 70 people are appointed, we don't hear anything else about them. We don't actually know what in they, they did to share Moshe's burden. We don't know what they did to help. But simply being with Moshe was part of the cure. And what's so moving about this passage is that at this moment, God speaks to Moshe like his best friend. You know, throughout the Torah, God appears to us or to individuals in different manners. He appears to us as creator. He appears to us as a sovereign, as a redeemer. And he also appears to us as tender, as loving, as intimate, he appears as a parent. He appears as a shepherd. He appears close to us. We say in Ashrei, Karov Hashem Lakol Karov. God is close to all who call. And in this passage, God appears as a friend. And as a friend, God says to Moshe, You don't have to be alone. You can have others help you. And that helps. Those words of Moshe comfort, those words of God comfort Moshe. Because right after this, Moshe appears to be a changed person. If you look in the next passage, in this Shabbos, you'll follow it along. The next passage, Moshe is a different person. All of a sudden, Yehoshua, his, his student, comes to tell him, Moshe, there's some other people that are prophesizing. Like, Yehoshua's worried that, that they are... Uh, um, kind of pushing in on Moshe's authority. And Moshe says, no, that's great. I wish everybody was a prophet. They're all leaders. <coughs> I'm not exclusive. I'm not the only one. Other people can help. And then, the end of the Parsha, the very difficult narrative where Miriam and Aharon, Moshe's sister and brother, speak negatively about him, how terrible it must be for the youngest brother to hear his older sister and older brother speaking negatively about them and God punishes Miriam for what she says and Moshe doesn't say a word. Doesn't seem to bother him. Moshe prays that Miriam should get better and that's where the Torah says, Hashem says that Moshe is the most humble of all men, the most meek of all men. 
relating to what I said this morning. The Torah is giving us a fascinating view of the psychodynamics of an emotional crisis. God is teaching us when someone is in despair, make sure they're not alone. And that's what God does. God makes sure that Moshe is not alone, that he will not have to lead alone in the futures, that there will be others to help him. That's the reason, by the way, that in our life, in those times when a person is isolated and feels alone and is going through crisis, that Jewish tradition surrounds a person so that they're not alone. The mitzvah to visit someone who is sick, the mitzvah to attend a funeral, to surround, to visit a shiva house, to envelop and surround and hug and be with the person. You're not alone. You're not going through it alone. At the time of maximum vulnerability, we imitate God in exactly this way by saying to a person who is suffering, you're not alone. And of course, as we all realize, that is one of the most difficult parts of what we are going through now with the coronavirus. That in this period where all we want to do is to be able to be with people who are in their maximum vulnerability. And we can't. And it tears us apart. That there's someone who is in the hospital and needs visitors and cannot have them because of the danger. That a person has to, God forbid, go through a funeral or sit Shiva alone or even if it's Shabbos alone or Yom Tov alone. And it, it tears us apart. It has been... It has been and continues to tear us apart. Okay, we understand right now we have to do this. But it's so out of the ordinary because God is teaching us that he is Moshe's friend and he brings Moshe others so that Moshe is not alone. And we understand that is how we need to act at least under normal circumstances. That's the model for us and hopefully we will come back to it very, very soon. I would like to share with you, please, one last short piece. <clears throat> it's not about this Parsha. When I was preparing for tonight, when I prepare these, I always review my notes over the last years to see what I have said, where I've said it. I try not to repeat myself too much. And I noticed that this Shabbos, the Parsha Baloscha, two years ago, 2018, I said this in shul at Adath on Shabbos morning, not related to the Parsha. That was May of 2018. You may remember at that time 
what was happening in Israel, Sterot was under almost constant attack. Sterot and the rest of the Gaza envelope, the communities surrounding Gaza. Missiles were flying, mortars, tunnels. It was a time of great, great difficulty. It's still great difficulty. And these balloons and these things are still happening and the tunnels still happening, but it was more of a crisis at that moment. And I shared this with you. And I share it with you tonight. Not because of Sterot. It applies to Sterot, although, as I said, it's a little bit more calm there. But I share it because today, even if it's not as relevant in Sterot, perhaps you will think that it is relevant elsewhere. And I think that each person should be able to apply it as you see fit. So I'm going to leave it up to you to provide the interpretation. But these are words that were written by Rabbi Haggai London. Rabbi London lives in and is a Rebbe in a yeshiva in Sterot. And in May 2018, during the height of rockets being fired, guns being shot at people in Sterot, he wrote the following words, and you apply it however you want. Every time they shoot at us, he wrote, people ask us what they can do to help. My answer is, be with us in your hearts. Feel that if there are rocket attacks in Sterot, then there are rocket attacks against the entire Jewish people wherever you are. And as long as it is not quiet in Sterot, then no Jew anywhere will have quiet. Feel that we are one human organism. Do it so that we will know that we are not alone. Because when we know that, when we who are suffering know that we are not alone, then life here becomes easier. My friends, I wish it for you and I wish it for me that we should be together with those who are being attacked, that we should all feel that we are one human organism and that we should do whatever we can to make sure that anyone who is suffering is not alone and we must try our best to ensure that their life becomes easier. My friends, thank you very much. Have a wonderful Shabbos.
stay safe, stay home, save lives. I look forward to seeing you in person soon.